Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We are continuing the story that is here as Philip has taken the gospel to the city of Samaria. And we met a man named Simon, known as the Magician. And we learn the rest of the story. Well, before we read the Word of God, let's seek our Heavenly Father again in prayer and ask His help. Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people who in ourselves are incapable of understanding the spiritual truth that comes from You. So Lord, we pray that You would open our eyes and You would cause our ears to listen and make our hearts receptive to Your Word, that You would use Your Word to teach us more of Christ and the life that Christ requires so that we would bring honor to Your name. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Again, we are in Acts chapter 8, and we're starting in verse 18 and reading to verse 25. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, thus far, the word of God, and may he bless it to us. Brethren, please be seated. We have a well-known idiom in our culture about getting to the heart of the matter. That idiom has been used for at least the last 250 years in the English language, and it means addressing the central issue, the core conundrum under discussion. We know so often in our discussions we can avoid directness and talk around the periphery of something. Politicians are... Masters at this. You've watched it. They receive a foundational problem, a question about a foundational problem, and instead of going to the heart of it, they obfuscate, they redirect, they change the focus, or they talk about something only tangentially related to the matter that was raised. But that isn't only a problem in politics. It's a crucial spiritual problem among ordinary people where we don't really want to examine the motivations and inclinations of the heart and preaching in our day, unfortunately, often floats with vague generalities that never gets to the heart of the matter. Because what we see in our passage, brethren, is the heart of the matter is really the matter of the heart. Where is your heart? What are the allegiances in your heart? What motivates what desires, what commitments are ruling your hearts? 
the Bible is clear to teach us that the heart is the center of the person. It's the source of all of our thinking and all of our doing. And of course, the bad news, biblically speaking, is our hearts are natively corrupt. This is what Jesus says, that you are evil, Matthew 7 or Mark 7, that everything that is corrupt is flowing out of your heart. Or Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. The heart cannot be trusted. What we need is a new heart with new thoughts, new desires, new patterns, new loyalties. And without this newness given by the power of the Holy Spirit and then evidence in our actions, we have a major spiritual problem. We're separated from God and doomed to destruction. Well, it appears that Simon the magician, whom we met last week here in the city of Samaria, it appeared he did have this new heart because we're told he believed, he received baptism, he was following Philip around as though wanting to learn from him. But then an occasion arose which revealed Simon's true colors, that his heart was not right before God. That is, that he was not converted. He had not actually come savingly to Jesus Christ. And Peter, who is no politician, spoke directly about the heart of the matter, his internal corruption. And as, we, as he does so, we see here sin unveiled, doom declared, and a call to change. This episode with Simon shows us, brethren, the danger of hypocrisy, half-hearted allegiance to Christ. And it's a hard word, but I want to bring five points from the text before you. We start with control sought in verses 18 and 19. Control sought. Now, last week in a unique moment, we saw the gospel spread from Jerusalem into the city of Samaria. And after many Samaritans believed in the name of the Lord Jesus, Peter and John had prayed for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we noted in detail last week that this two-tiered work of the Spirit, regenerating believers and then later falling on these believers in fullness, that that is not normal. Let me say it again. It is not normal to have this two-tiered activity. It was an exceptional situation to confirm to the apostles that the Jews and the Samaritans are now in Christ, no longer being two peoples, but one people. All the cultural boundaries, all the history of division is destroyed by the uniting power of the gospel of Christ. And now these Samaritans have the same spiritual blessings, namely the spiritual empowerment to serve Christ, to know Jesus intimately. They have access to the same God and the same Spirit is gifting them for service. Now the Spirit, as Paul and Peter will go on to teach, gifts us all in different ways. Not all are apostles or teachers, but all are gifted. Well, Simon formerly known as the magician, he watches this take place, some kind of tangible display of the Holy Spirit falling on the Samaritans, and he immediately coveted the power he saw so that he offers John and Peter money, verse 18. Actually, the, the word we have for simony comes from this situation where you buy church office 
simony. It comes from Simon. He's saying, verse 19, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now we should immediately be struck by the madness, the foolishness of this offer. When were men ever in the Bible able to control the Holy Spirit? Who can possibly govern the Spirit of God Almighty? Indeed, wasn't that one of the central points Jesus was making to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when He compared the Spirit to wind? You remember the, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. What's the point of the illustration? You can't tame the wind, therefore you cannot control the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is sovereign. He's under no man's direction as if fallen, finite man could ever govern the infinite, powerful Holy Spirit. For Simon to say this, to seek to control the Spirit, demonstrates a profound theological error. Further, it fails to understand the good news of Jesus. Christ is the King who triumphed in His death and resurrection. Jesus has ascended on high at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and He has received the promised Holy Spirit. And as Jesus inaugurates the age of the Spirit, the Messianic Kingdom, Jesus is the one who pours out the Spirit. What's happening here in Samaria is the result of the risen Christ, not any mere man, but the risen Christ advancing His kingdom. But Simon is still viewing things through his former practice of magic. And he wants to be able to give this gift. Simon desires to have the power in himself and thereby to control divine things. Now think of it for a moment, brethren. If man had that kind of power, what would he do with it? He would control people to his own advantage. Indeed, he would make others dependent upon him. We remember before Philip came to town, Simon was proclaiming his own greatness. Back up in verse 9, that was his message. Look how great I am. As he did miraculous signs, demonically empowered miracles, the people were praising him as some kind of God or a man filled with divine power. He clearly loved the attention. He was a man who wanted to be in the spotlight. There's nothing in this man like we saw in John the Baptist who said in John 3, I must decrease and he, Christ, must increase. No, Simon wants to increase. Simon wants control. Simon is full of selfish ambition and he seems to think that control and ambition is driving the apostles. Notice again what he says in verse 19. Give me this power also. As if Peter and John are profiteering, self-promoting showmen who seek their own glory and not the glory of King Jesus. Simon wants a world where he can manipulate people, where he can be famous and rich as he exploits others. He should remind you of modern day showmen like the TV preacher's in their silk suits, exuding great emotion and imploring you to buy a miracle. Tap into the power I have. Just make sure you leave your credit card information. Costi Hinn, who's a saved by grace alone believer, 
Costi Hinn in a fascinating book called God, Greed, and the Prosperity, in parentheses, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. This nephew of the prosperity preacher fraud, Benny Hinn, describes what it was like growing up in the ministerial empire. Costi's dad and his famous uncle, Benny Hinn, built a mammoth ministry on the backs of easy marks. Costi explains that the Christ his family proclaimed was more like a magic genie than the king of kings. The goal was not Christ's glory, but personal gain, and they gained quite a bit. Costi said his upbringing was like a cross between a royal family and the mafia. The lifestyle was lavish. Loyalty to the family business absolute and enforced. He speaks of living in a 10,000 square foot mansion with security guards, with various Mercedes Benz in the driveway, a $2 million ocean view beach house in California. There were $25,000 a night hotel suites, resort stays, and flights, of course, on a family-owned private Gulfstream. But with this money, deceit and corruption abounded. Costi remembers as a child one time asking his dad to go visit a school friend who had cancer and was losing her hair due to chemo. He wanted his dad to heal her. His dad said, no, we're not going to do that. You just pray at home. Which prompted questions. If we have the same gift of the apostles, shouldn't we do what the apostles are doing? Why did the healings performed by the family only occur at massive crusades with mood lighting and manipulative music? Why did they only happen when money was exchanged and people had the right amount of faith? Costi was seeing that this so-called ministry was all about control and money. It was about self-worship and not the worship of Christ. You see, brethren, the devil is really not all that creative. He's using the same tricks in our own day as he was using in Acts chapter 8. He wants you to focus on you. He wants you to gratify your pleasures. He wants you to boast of your power and along the way to seek to diminish or even dominate others to your personal advantage. Now maybe this rotten motive hasn't risen to the level in your heart of wanting to control the Holy Spirit. But is there in us a tinge of selfish ambition and vain glory? Do we ask ourselves the, the queen is no white question? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And dominate people who get in the way. Do we have a Diotrephes mentality? Third John, one of those books you probably should go read. It won't take you long. Diotrephes always loves to be first. That's the apostolic condemnation. Or then there are times when James and John, they want to sit at Jesus' right hand and left in His kingdom. Make it all about us. We want to have the positions of power. The Gospel of Christ, brethren, calls us to kill those things, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Christ. What is that what we're doing? Do we say, whatever was gained to me, I count it loss for the sake of Christ? Are we craving praise? Are we pursuing control? Are we feeding our own conceit? 
Or are we giving ourselves away in view of Jesus who gave Himself for us? The church of Christ is no place for power dynamics and personal agendas of glory. It's about Jesus alone. Well, secondly, see with me. Condemnation uttered upon Simon's selfish and satanic request, Peter blasts him. (laughs) This is not what a politician would say. He says, verse 20, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, it's not hard for us to tell that this is a curse, but the language in our translation is softer than the original. The word perish is literally destruction. As in, may you go to the everlasting place of torment, which is under the judgment of God. If Simon will not repent, the destiny of his money and his soul will be hell, the eternal fire. In fact, J.B. Phillips, his famous work, The New Testament in Modern English, it's a wonderful paraphrase from 1958. He writes of this verse that Peter says, brace yourself for it, to hell with you and your money. That sounds like profanity, doesn't it? And yet one famous Greek commentator says, that's exactly what the Greek is saying. You, my friend, are headed to destruction. You and your wishes, you and your selfish ambition. Peter, an apostle, a mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ, is consigning Simon to judgment. Now, how can he do this? And why? Well, we know that human manipulation is a serious sin, but why such intensity in terms of the condemnation? Well, Simon's words threaten the gospel. If you can buy the gift of God, what does that do to grace? It's totally destroyed. If the Spirit's regenerating work and empowerment were up for sale, what need would we have of Jesus Christ? There would be no need. Simon is thinking like a pagan where man manipulates God to get what he wants. It's like the Baal worshipers in their rain dance and cutting themselves that they might twist God's arm on Mount Carmel or Baal's arm to do what they want. In paganism, you compel God to do what you want Him to do. In biblical religion, man is utterly lost and needs the initiating grace of God. God comes to us. God acts sovereignly. He chooses. He loves. He gives His Son to save. And we make no contribution. The famous declaration from Isaiah 55 that Jesus will allude to in John 7. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. How do you buy if you don't have any money? Well, that's just it. You can't. The idea here is the freeness of the grace of God. And that's the nature of grace, isn't it? It's free. It's unconditional. It abounds with blessings to all who come. But Simon is turning the gospel of God's free grace in Christ on its head. And brethren, where there is an attack on the gospel, there are no mincing of words. Maybe you remember Galatians chapter 1 when the Apostle Paul speaks to the Galatians and he's distressed that they are so easily overtaken by what is no gospel at all. A Christ plus your works idea. And he says this, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary 
to the one you received. Let him be accursed. Let God's judgment fall upon him. That's the nature here of the rebuke to Simon. Simon's desires are showing us that he's still under Satan's sway. Indeed, look at what Peter says to him further, verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Simon, you have no portion, no share in the blessings of the gospel. You are not partaking of saving grace. You are not in a state of salvation. How can he be sure? Well, he declares, Peter does, the internal problem. Your heart is not right before God. You're not in right standing. You don't have clean hands and a pure heart. How could Peter know this? Because as God told Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, man sees to the eyes, literally, to the external things. But God sees to the heart. Well, the Holy Spirit is clearly clearly revealing to Peter what's going on in the heart. It's a crucial point we're being reminded. We know this biblically. You cannot hide your heart from the Lord. You may try to hide your heart to some degree from others. You may try to put on a mask. But the Lord sees the truth about us. He sees hypocrisy. He knows when there's phony faith. You remember that terrifying warning of Jesus in Matthew 7? Many will say on that day, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and in Your name do many mighty works? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a spine-tingling text, isn't it? Deception can run so deep in our hearts that we even deceive ourselves into thinking that we're Jesus' people. Well, how do we know if we're Jesus' people? We turn from lawlessness. We don't simply say we love Christ. We love His Gospel. Our love for Jesus compels living unto Jesus, or as Paul puts it, we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and was raised. The evidence of a heart right before God is a heart devoted to Jesus, a heart that puts to death the love of self and submits to Christ. So we come with all of our sin, and we may have more than Simon does here, but we confess that we confess our sin before the Lord and we cling to Jesus, the fountain filled with blood who can wash us and make us clean. We recognize I'm not my own, I've been bought with a price. And having been freely, graciously, and unimaginably loved in Jesus, I love Him by keeping His commandments. Brethren, I want you to look at Simon. It's uncomfortable. But look at him and see, he's a guy in the church. He's a guy who professed faith. He's a guy who had been baptized. This is a warning to us. Are our hearts right with God? Are we still walking in the love of sin, dominated by covetous desires and dismissing the clear commands of Christ? Or are we walking to please Jesus because He made us new? This says examine yourself. Let us not walk in deception. Let us not think because we assent to the fact that Jesus is real and Jesus is powerful and Jesus is raised that we are therefore loyal to Jesus. Because the devil knows that Jesus reigns. The devil knows that Jesus was raised. The devil knows that Jesus loves. But he's the devil still. 
Thirdly, see with me. A call to turn. After this horrible curse utterance, all hope for Simon isn't lost. He sinned greatly, and yet there's a possibility of repentance here. How do we know? Because he's called to repent. Verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Even for Simon, there's a way back. And brethren, this is the summons that always accompanies the Gospel. The first word of Gospel response, whether you hear John the Baptist is preaching, Jesus is preaching, the Apostles preaching, or faithful preaching today, the first word of Gospel response is the same. Repent. Turn from your sins to the mercy of God in Christ. Look at your evil intentions of heart and change your mind. See your former intentions as defiling and repugnant and see the cleansing that Jesus offers. Grieve your sin and plead to God who is ready to forgive that He might pardon your soul. But note that Peter says, pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What does that if possible mean? Are not all things possible with God? Is Peter sowing seeds of doubt? Oh no, I think what he's doing is indicating to Simon the hopelessness he should have in himself to cleanse this great offense. The sin he has committed is especially heinous. So he should seek the Lord with fervency. He can't be flippant about his failing here. Peter's words are intended to light a fire under him concerning the seriousness of sin and the danger of hell so that Simon will intensely seek the Lord. Isn't this a way that the devil works as he wants you not to think that your sin is really that bad? One Puritan described it in a chilling image of Satan rocking your cradle to sleep so that you don't sense the urgency of the need and run to Jesus. This is urgent. Why? Peter says, I, I see, verse 23, that you were in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. He's alluding to two Old Testament texts. First, Deuteronomy 29. This root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit indicates a person is trapped in idolatry. If you've ingested poison, like the bitter root wormwood, then you're a dead man. You have no antidote. You have no power to get yourself out of the situation. You need the mercy of God. Likewise, if you're in the bond of iniquity from Isaiah 58, you're captive to sin. You're a slave, a prisoner. You can't shatter your chains. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What's Peter saying to Simon? You're poisoned. You're a slave to sin. You have no ability to escape. The only hope you have of avoiding destruction is the forgiveness of the Lord. And it's a forgiveness that every sinner needs. By nature, Jesus and His apostles will teach, we are evil. We are slaves to sin. Naturally, we are dominated by the devil. And we cannot shake ourselves free. In fact, brethren, we are slaves of the strangest kind. We're willing slaves. We do the things that lead to death. We keep drinking the poison. We keep subjecting ourselves to the misery of sin. Well, what hope is there in us to escape our bondage? There's no hope in us. Otherwise, why would Jesus even need to come? 
you shall call his name Jesus, for he's going to do what? He will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus talked about this impossibility when he encountered the rich young ruler. Remember that man came to Jesus asking, good teacher, what, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? It's all wrong from the start, thinking that he's got to do something to gain life. Jesus says, what about the commandments? Oh, I've kept all of them from my youth. And again, you're saying, Phew, I don't, get away from this guy. He claims to keep all of God's commandments. And Jesus says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Sell everything you have and go give it to the poor. Jesus puts his finger on the problem, the covetousness in the man's heart. And we see he's unwilling to do that. He's enslaved to his money. And he walks away and Jesus lets him go. Jesus then comments to his apostles, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Some very creative Bible teachers today have said, oh, there was a camel gate in Jerusalem and a camel had to get down on its knees. to." No, stop it. That's a stupid story and that never happened. It's impossible. That's the point. You can't do that. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. That's exactly the conclusion the disciples draw. Then who can be saved? And Jesus, looking at them, said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Simon has been depending on himself and has failed to see he needs something that he can't do. He needs the impossible to come to bear on his soul, to forgive his heinous and shocking sin. And yet, see that Peter calls him to repent, aiming to goad him to seek forgiveness earnestly. There's still hope here. It's a dark passage, but what are you seeing about the heart of God? He forgives sinners. He's willing to forgive. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And dear friend, you may be here this morning and you may be in the gall of bitterness yourself. You may be a church member. You may be a baptized person who professes Christ. But the truth is, the heart of the matter is, you love yourself. You seek to satisfy your sinful longings and you walk contrary to the clear commands of Christ. You're in bondage to sin. Maybe it's in the arena of sexual immorality, dominating immoral thoughts, the pursuit of sexual images. Maybe it's in the love of money or the delight in things and not Christ. Maybe your heart is ruled by jealousy or unforgiveness or a lukewarmness and apathy. So there's no fire for Christ at all. Whatever the sin, the summons is the same. Repent. Seek the God who can do the impossible and pardon your sin. Come to Christ and be washed. Come and have a heart that is made new. And don't hesitate. Don't linger thinking, oh, well, I'll get myself together. I'll turn over some new leaf. I'll make myself better and then I'll come. No, just come. Leave your sin and come. Because only Jesus can break the bonds of sin. And only Jesus can make the foulest clean. Seek Him now. And then notice fourthly, the contrition that's flawed here. Contrition flawed. Simon has been summoned to repent. And evidently, he's recognized he's done something very wrong. Maybe a touch of his guilt is upon him. But notice his response. He says to Peter, verse 24, Pray for me 
that nothing of what you have said may come true. His request is really simple. Pray that I won't go to hell. Pray that I won't be cut off from spiritual blessings. Now, what's wrong with that prayer? Two things are wrong with the request. Two things. One, Simon has been called to repent. And repentance is an action that no one can do for you. People can pray to God for you. And God is pleased in His sovereign purposes to mysteriously use our prayers. However, if you are a drunkard or a manipulating deceiver and you simply ask someone to pray for you, how does that fall short? You're not changing. You're not seeking God. The great word that Peter declared from Joel back at Pentecost was that everyone, notice how specific and singular that is, every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That calling has to come from the sinner. I can't pray you into the pardon of God. You have to seek the Lord while He may be found. Well, brethren, that Simon is not doing. He won't pray for himself. There seems to be here no personal responsibility and no true recognition of the desperate need he has to flee to Christ now. And then secondly, what Simon wants here is not salvation in Jesus. He wants to escape the consequences of sin. Pray for me that none of this horrible stuff that you said will happen. There's no indication here that he grieves his sin and groans for Christ. Salvation, biblically speaking, isn't fire insurance. Salvation is Christ. Knowing Christ. Communing with Christ. Leaving sin and loving Christ. Your life as a Christian is all about Jesus. Paul will say, Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live... There's actually no verb in the Greek sentence. To live, Christ. My life is Christ. Everything about me is about Christ. Well, is that true of us? Is our conviction flawed? Maybe we know we're sinners. I doubt anyone among us would argue that they're not. Maybe we know the wages of sin is death. But that isn't the same thing as with grief and hatred, turning from your sin to God for mercy, the mercy He gives in Christ, and then wanting to follow Jesus, to be conformed to Jesus. Brethren, that is new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Do we have newness of life? Are we seeking to know Jesus, to be with Him and shaped by Him? That is where true conviction of sin leads. And it's clear Simon, at least here, doesn't have that kind of conviction. Now the Scriptures are silent about what happens to Simon after this encounter. We just move on from the story. It's likely that the silence is bad news. That there never was repentance. I mentioned last week the early church fathers looked at Simon and saw him as the source of a major heresy that will spread into the church over the next 200 plus years. But we don't really need to know how it ultimately came out with Simon to get the message. No repentance, then hell awaits. No repentance, then hell awaits. Flee your sin and go to the forgiven God who will cleanse you in Jesus. 
Finally, note with me. And very briefly here, continuing expansion. It's a brief point, and thankfully, it's an encouraging one after all this difficulty. Have you noticed as we've read together throughout the book of Acts, when the gospel comes with power, that Satan always strikes back? That satanic strike was seen in Acts 3 and 4. Peter and John healed the lame man. Many other people ended up being converted. The Sanhedrin moved in to stop Peter and John. And when they couldn't silence them, eventually all the apostles are arrested and beaten. Satan turns to the inside, not just an outside attack. He has false believers, Ananias and Sapphira, try to deceive the apostles. But their masquerade is exposed and they are liquidated. Satan then turns again to the outside with persecution and stoning of Stephen. And while the Lord uses that persecution, He uses Satan's devices against him, driving people out of Jerusalem, and they carry the gospel with them to gossip the gospel, Satan strikes again. Simon is here another inside assault, a satanic assault. But once again, brethren, what do we discover? We see that Satan's schemes in the city of Samaria do not shut down the gospel. Verse 25. Now when they, Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. However, as they're en route to Jerusalem, these apostles, seeing that the gospel is going to the Samaritans, they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Don't you imagine how culturally shocking that would be for Peter and John? They hadn't hung out with Samaritans their whole lives. To them, Samaritans are half-breeds unworthy of even having a conversation with. And now that here they are among them, preaching Christ. What does it mean? Satan's attempts to squelch the spread of the gospel have totally failed. Peter and John have seen King Jesus is blessing the Word. Outsiders are being converted like the Samaritans. And they just keep on preaching. Because the gospel is the means for growth. And the kingdom of Christ is moving now, not just to the city of Samaritan, of Samaria, but it's now spreading into other villages. What's the point? Christ's plan is moving forward and Satan, while he rages and causes trouble and maintains his hold on some, he still can't stop the gospel. What an encouragement. There is a real devil who is really working in real people and we will fight tooth and nail against Satan. He will make things hard and he will keep some in chains. But he's still the loser. And the gospel goes in power. And brethren, for that, we should praise God. Let us just make sure that we are actually receiving the gospel. Let's pray together. Well, gracious Father, we come before you and thank, are thankful that your word is so clear to teach us about the danger of sin. Lord, we all know that sin is a restless evil, a deadly poison aiming to bring destruction to us. And we know that we're supposed to lean not on our own understanding, but only trust in You with all of our heart. And yet, sin still rages. Help us, O Lord, not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies that we would obey its lusts. We pray that each and every one of us would flee hypocrisy and run to Jesus and find in Christ sufficiency to hide all of our transgressions from view.
Oh Lord, keep us from dishonoring Your name and keep us from a coldness of heart or a covetousness of spirit that is idolatry which would lead us to eternal destruction. Lord, we plead these things with You and we pray that You would encourage us with the spread of the Gospel of Christ. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.